2: Hey everyone, welcome to
3: episode 74 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy, here with co-host Dave Park. Uh, This is a little bit of a different episode. We normally live stream. This one is pre-recorded since it falls on Christmas Eve, and all three of us have other things to be doing on that particular evening. Um, But we wanted to be committed to getting out an episode um, this Friday for you nonetheless, so we are pre-recording this one with our our, our guest here, uh, Greg Coker. The day uh, you actually read Greg's book.
2: Yes. Uh it was a phenomenal book. Um it uh so the book is uh Death Waits in the Darkness. Uh right? Six guns don't miss. Correct. And and when you say six guns don't miss, what is a six gun, Greg?
0: Well, the, there's a bit of a story about the six guns and that's I was in B Company, First the One Hundred Sixtieth. There's A, B, Charlie, Delta, in First Battalion. Well, back when they had reconfigured after the Desert mishap in nineteen eighty, and the One Hundred Sixtieth was formed, and they were training to go back with all Army helicopter pilots and gun pilots. The gun guys were flying AHs. They were in the desert. <coughs> Pardon me. And a couple of A.H.'s landed, and Colonel Beckwith was standing there. Well, they carried two. We carried two miniguns, one on each side of the aircraft. And Colonel Beckwith, the pilots got out, and they were all dusty and dirty. And he says, man, you guys look like old gunfighters from the old west. So um, from now on, you're going to be known as the six guns, just like the two pistols that they carried. Like in the gunfire days.
2: <laughs> right. It was six chambers and the, uh, the little birds have their gun, Their uh, guns. Six, have barrels. six, yeah. All right. six <laughs> barrels? Yeah. Six barrels. Yeah, six barrels. So, Greg, yep. uh, well, I, I, to, to put it very mildly, you were a pilot with the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Um, and, uh, and that's the small of it. But, Greg, before we get into all that, uh, something you may not know about Jack and I is we are big comic book geeks. And to us, you are the real-life heroes. Like, you are the superheroes. And so every hero has an origin story. And we would love to hear your origin story. Who were you growing up? Uh, what drew you to the military? Uh, you know, just anything that you want to share with us.
0: Sure. Yeah, We. I think we all... We all have a story and it's, it's pretty interesting in, in our organizations and specifically army special operations that, and I always said that, you know, somebody should just study this because you have all these men from all over the country that come to one very small, very specialized unit. And, and it interested me as to, okay, why, why did we all, you know, this is where God put us. That's why. And you know, I, I tell everybody and I talk to guys later, I, I and this hit me like a rock one day that you know this is God's path for every man here. And when we are being knitted in our mother's womb, it says in the Bible, that our path is laid out and that is one of a warrior's path, and that's how these warriors come together. Uh grew up, you know, just like pretty much everybody else chasing critters in the woods and I worked on my uncle's farm and ranch and cowboyed and rode horses, and, you know, of course, hunted and fished. And I was a child of the 60s, so to speak, and the Vietnam War was going on at that time. My father was in the military. He retired after 30 years. But, you know, that was the television war, and I can remember that was also the helicopter war, so I always had this inspiration or calling to fly helicopters i mean they just i wanted to be in the military and be in the army and again that was you know that was my calling to go do go forth and do so
2: <clears throat> and so that was that was your path now did you did you go into the uh, army as a pilot was there a pilot program at the time did you go in enlisted how, how did that work
0: Yeah, good question. Uh, At the time, well, for a very long time, the Army has had from high school to flight school for the warrant officer program for the United States Army to fly helicopters. And I went in, I enlisted first. And I just, my father, you know, told me, hey, this is probably the best path for you. This is what I recommend. So I enlisted, and I was in the 101st and the 327th Infantry. There at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, for almost three years, when I applied for flight school, and I had an old. Our brigade commander was Colonel Ralph Hagler. You may you may remember that name, and so he was very. He he was a very integral part in in you know helping my path. I looked at going to two seven five Rangers because Colonel Hagler had been the. 275 Commander, when they jumped into Grenada. So he was pulling me kind of that way. Yeah. And, and, uh, but he knew I, I really, really wanted to fly. So that was, yeah, that's what I did. I and got so, accepted to flight school. Okay. And,
2: and how long was flight school uh, for a warrant? I mean, I'm sure it's probably the same for an officer, but when you go into flight school and it's helicopters, like how long is it and what's the basic course there?
0: Yes, sir there were three tracks that back then in 1989, 1990, there was a scout track. So those guys flew fifty eights. And there was the lift track. So they were Huey's Black Hawk was coming on. It was online and then Chinooks. And then there was a gun track. Well, I wanted to be a gun guy. I like shooting stuff and blowing shit up. So (laughs) that was just a natural fit for me. And I, I tracked in the Cobra's. Uh, during flight school for the gun guys we had the longest period it was one exactly one year from the day i started to the day i graduated and left it was a little bit shorter for the lift guys because they don't have to learn ballistics and shooting and range operations and things like that
2: and so you went through flight school uh for for the gunships and then where where did you go from there what was your first duty station
0: my first duty station was in South Korea in the 517 Cav, and we were at the time we were the of the deployed aviation unit and mech unit. We were right up by the border, and that was our mission was to fly the 37th parallel, I believe, the North South Korean border. And yeah, it was it was a really good tour for a, a brand new junior aviator. And we you know we flew mountains. Of course, it snowed, so we got. Cold weather ops, we got over water ops and put a lot of night vision goggles and we we, we had a real world mission then. So yeah, it was it was pretty serious and it, it was a good tour for a young gun pilot.
2: Yeah. Now were you aware of the one sixtieth at that point in time? Uh, when did that come Yes, out? sir.
0: Yeah, I, I can re- I can recall and I'd see the little loaches. Now I was at Campbell and we had just come out of the field 327th, uh, we just come out of the field one time, and we were sitting back there I was cleaning weapons or doing whatever and, and these four little birds fly by, Their route was right there by our, you know where our headquarters was and uh, I said, hey check out those little black helicopters and old, old platoon stars looked over at me, he's like, shut up, those don't exist, you know it doesn't, uh, <laughs> Like, well, I said, I think I'm gonna fly one one day. He's like, Shut up, Coker, go back to work.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're too stupid, or something like that. I wish I could remember his name and find him
2: now. <laughs> yeah, show um, huh? So for our viewers, most of our viewers are aware of the different types of platforms. But for our viewers who're not, can you describe what a little bird is? Because it's very, it's very unique.
3: Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd be very yeah. interested to hear from an actual little bird pilot. Like the, the here, here's your little bird familiarization class.
0: Yes. sir. Yeah. Good. I, and people get confused because I say, well, I flew little birds, and they're like, oh, the oh eight fifty eight. I'm like, no, it's I don't know what that is, but it's a civilian helicopter. And it it grew out of the old Hughes McDonald Douglas Loach, the O eighty six from Vietnam era. And great, great helicopters. And of course they have their history flying in, in Vietnam and, and that's what the unit when they first formed in eighty one that's what they selected. Some of the guys were, were still Vietnam guys around, you know, flying army helicopters. And a lot of the you know, everybody came out of the hundred first and very aviation heavy at the time, just great, great pilots and leaders and commanders. But what it is today, it is a civilian MD five hundred and thirty helicopter, and we buy them from I think it's Boeing, Hughes, McDonald, Douglas, <laughs> whoever owns owns them now. But yeah, the old it's Mr. Hughes engineer developed put that helicopter together and he, he wanted a a survivable airframe and that's where it got its egg shape from is what we call it the egg. Yes, he knocked the, egg, knocked right? the tail boom off. Yeah. It looks like an egg. Yeah. So and then the way it's engineered the the different areas of, of airframe in it and it just it forms a protective capsule around the pilots if it rolls. And I'm here today to tell you that it works. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll talk about it later.
2: We definitely will. Um, yeah. And I mean, so when they say a little bird, it really is little. Like people who haven't yes. seen it before, uh, there's room for the pilots and room for your ammo. And pretty much that's it. Um, that's
0: it. Right. You know. And there's another version in a company, 160th, the MH6s, the MH, they're mission helicopters. They have the planks on the side, our customers, you know, get on the sides of them. They can take three on each side and then a dog or, you know, something that they need for the mission. And that's, that's how those are configured. So there's two little bird companies in the 160th and at Fort Camp. Yeah.
3: And you were uh, on one of the, the gun platforms. Uh, could you talk about sure. the armaments that can be loaded up on, on one of these aircraft?
0: Sure. And kind of back to where the aircraft comes from, they purchase them commercially then they go up to bluegrass kentucky and they get reconfigured with mill standard radios our armament systems and now the it's i flew the j model now we have the m model and the difference is the j had a five-bladed rotor system the m has a six-bladed rotor system and a four-bladed tail rotor system which gives us more lift so we can carry more ammo and gas or people so it 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 was a, and we have a glass cockpit. So the aircraft have really been upgraded a bunch since I've left. But I did fly the M on a couple of tours before I retired. Armament-wise, they get an armament system put in them, and then our standard configuration are dual Dillon M134 miniguns. They fire 4,000 rounds per minute each, and then two seven-shot rocket pods. We generally carry 10 or 17-pound Mark 66 rockets. Um, that's our standard configuration. So that's about 132 bullets a second when you pull a trigger,
2: 7.62. And we'll get into all the advanced technology that you guys use for uh, for ah, evening, uh, yeah. as we get into it. Um, so, so tell us about applying to the one did did you just do the one duty station or did you do another uh sort of conventional side and then go to 160th or how did that work for you
0: yeah when i got back from flying cobras i had tracked into apaches and went right just as desert storm was starting is when i got home so i hauled tail to fort rucker and started to go through the apache transition because i thought you know they were there was going to be a need for Apache pilots and I was assigned to the 101st and then, you know, the thing was over in like, I don't know, six, seven days. So they kind of throttled back, regrouped and they had a short course for us that were there. Then they just, we went back to the standard. And I flew a 64s, the first and 101st, uh, at the time Lieutenant Colonel Cody was commander later to become general Cody and, uh, yeah, I was there for about two and a half years, and then I assessed for the 160th and 93. It, what's,
2: what's the difference or the primary difference for whether it's the mission or the setup between a Cobra and an Apache?
0: Well, the Cobra, it's an older airplane frame. It's, you know, 60s technology. It's single engine. has a 20-millimeter cannon on the nose, and it carried tow missiles and then two nineteen shot 19-shot record pods. The Apache, of course, is, was advanced technology. It's two engines, 30-millimeter chain gun, uh, still 219-shot rocket pods, Hellfire missiles. So those, those were the big changes. Both are great, great helicopters, and, and the folks that fly them are, yeah, they're just they're awesome gun pilots. So, talk to some ground forces that have worked for them.
2: Yeah. So what was the process then for uh, applying to the 160th, and, and how did that go for you?
0: It's pretty much your resume for what you've done up until that point. And I was, I was somewhat of a junior aviator. I was a pretty young W-2, and at the time, the standards to apply to the unit was 1,000 hours of flight time and 100 hours of goggle. But I only had, like, I think six hundred maybe 50 hours of flight time, but I had over 200 hours of night vision goggles. And we flew MVGs a bunch in Korea, and then we flew them a bunch in the 101st. So, you know, I think they weighed it, and I had a couple good friends of mine there, unit and B company. And, you know, so, yeah, I, I sent them my packet, my, my resume, so to speak, and they look at your flight time, what you've done up to that point in your career, and I, you know, I think, hey, they, they said, let's take a chance on this guy. He's got double the, you know, the night vision double time as most guys do when they come here. So, so, so I got picked up for an assessment and went and assessed the week long. Oh <laughs> <laughs> man, it, it's it's pretty
2: tough.
0: It's pretty tough.
2: Was but, the assessment? Flying was it physical? Was it mental? What can if you can tell us anything about that?
0: Yeah, let me let me think without giving too much away. It it was extremely physical, and it it tested you. It tested you physically, emotionally, and mentally. And it lasts a week. Um, yeah, you come in and UPT and a bunch of other things, and and then your final for the pilots our final day is our check ride we get, we're get we given a target depending on what company you're going to they're little birds, hawks chinooks and then you're given a target and you have 24 hours I think to plan it mm-hmm. and
1: uh,
0: yeah, then you go out and fly with your IP that doesn't say a word to you the whole flight <laughs> <So laughs> almost two and it. a half hours and <laughs> you know you you're like well then the next morning you have a formal board and they you know, they watch you the whole week you know, all the different things that you do during that week and and yeah, the regimental commanders there, the unit psych's there, your IP, there's other IPs, more officers, senior warrants from the unit. And I think Randy Jones was there at mine if I remember correctly, but it's it's very intimidating yeah so to speak and walk in of course you're in your class A's and you know you knock on the door and they yell at you enter and walk in and present and then let the beatings begin huh. <laughs> yeah so
2: you must have been well though because you, <coughs> me you got in and so you've flown cobras, you've flown Apaches so you're fully mission qualified they just give you an airframe and go, okay, you're good.
0: No, oh no, (laughs) no, you, you start all over again in the unit. I mean, you're, it's a process and you have to work with, you know, all the different customers and you have to learn their ground scheme maneuver. And we had several guys that were, you know, former infantry guys, rangers. So, you know, we have a good background on what's going on on the ground. Well, that's something that you have to teach everybody. You have to work with different colors at a time and it's for the aH guys it's it's about two years to get up to FMq to fully mission qualified pilot so you're in you know you're you, you're a BMq when you get there basic mission qualified pilot and then you spend the next 18 to 24 months training to to attain that FMq status and then you're a combat ready attack helicopter pilot So, So plus teaching the guys to shoot to the standard in which we shoot,
2: right? Which, uh, so, so when you went in, you went straight to Little Birds. Can you you can go that route uh, straight to straight to the A sixes?
0: Yes, sir. Well, I was a I was a a a gun guy, so that's the natural progression. You know, the lift guys, the scout guys. They may go to ACO, or they may have a guy. You know, they'll ask you, you know, what what you'd like to go fly. And I told them I'll go fly hot air balloons if you want me to. So, so you know, just give me some hand grenades, so I can drop on the bad guys, and I'll just float over them. And <laughs> so, yeah, that that back then that was a natural progression for Cobra. You know, most of the guys were Cobra Apache guys and M B Company because you already had that background and ballistics and you know shooting and it's it's it just takes a lot a lot of training and practice to you know to shoot to the high standards which we shoot.
2: And so what's the difference in terms of your function between uh, basic mission qualified and fully mission qualified? Are you riding number two? Are you not if there were a mm-hmm. war, are you still are are you the co pilot? How does that work?
0: Yes, sir. You're usually in Dash Two, what we call it, or the wingman in the left seat, or we'll fly both seats because you got to train in both seats and fly from, and shoot from both seats. So you get you, know, you get about equal time in both. And you'll you know they say that the hardest job in the army is flying Dash Two in B Company because your whole mission in life is to protect Lead. Lead will always have two seasoned senior FNQs in the front aircraft because their their job is to positively identify that target and engage that target. So dash two, you're sitting back. And of course, every pilot has their technique and how they want to skin it. But your whole mission in life is to protect the lead so they can get in there and shoot that target plus or minus 30 seconds.
2: Now, you said that when you went to the Apache that it was you know modern technology. And I imagine there are all kinds of gizmos and gadgets. Then you go to the world's, you know, prestige uh, aviation unit, top, mm-hmm. you know, top of the top and into yes, the Little sir. Bird. And, and tell us what that technological leap was like then, going into the Little Bird.
0: <laughs> well, it's going back about 50 years. <laughs> there, <clears throat> there, there's not a whole lot of technology in that, in that helicopter. And that's, you know, it, the more technology you get, More they break. Uh, It it is what it is with helicopters, more electronics, things like that. We still, the aircraft still had the old. We call them steam gauges. We had gauges to look at, not LEDs and screens and glass and 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 it. You know those aircraft just work. They work all the time. We have the best crew chiefs on the planet and the best armament personnel on the planet. And, I mean, I, I would never, even, I wouldn't have to pre-fly an aircraft. I'd go out, jump in it, strap it in, crank it up, fly away, not ever worry about it because they're they're just, they're professionals dedicated to their jobs. Yeah. And, you know, they, they care about us. So
2: Now, you talk about uh, being able to shoot to standard. And, and I think that anybody in the special operations community who's, who's ever worked with AH-6s, knows how precise you guys are on target uh yes, what sir. a feat that is but isn't that just a matter of letting the little uh moving markers line up you know the lasers and and the the digital things line up and it, like you got a lot
0: <laughs> yeah your hud and your uh, yeah. no <laughs> how, how and
2: aiming a little bird
0: so we use a grease pencil i'm not kidding and yeah. every Gun pilot has their spot on the windscreen. We take a grease pencil, army issue, one each, and you put a little dot up there. And some of them have pretty intricate, you know, they'll have stadia on it. And actually, there's, it's on, it's ghosted in the cover on my book. And a few guys have picked it up. They're like, hey, man, that's a pepper. We call it a pepper. So that's another thing in, in learning to shoot is placing that pepper at the same exact place every time. So you know when you pull the trigger, you send a rocket, it's gonna go where that pepper is. And that that takes, you know, again, is compounded in shooting this helicopter, you know, at the at the standards in which we shoot, and we shoot pretty close to friendlies and and they have great trust in our abilities that, you know, they know that if they get in trouble that we'll come in there and get pretty close to them if we
2: have to. Very close.
0: Yeah, it's a grease pencil mark. <laughs> That's it. We, I mean, we've tried all kind of gizmos and HUDs and sights and red dots and braces, but, you know, Fred Horsley, I think, said he was a former B Company gun guy that, you know, the mind's the fastest computer on the planet. And, you, you, you know, it, it's, we're good using a grease pencil mark. That's amazing. So,
2: that's amazing. Yep. I mean, are there guys who go to one hundred and sixty, especially, especially in the assault side, where you know you have to have that kind of precision? Um, that just they don't have the hands of a the surgeon; they just can't quite line it all up and get it.
0: Sure, sure. I, in my tenure in Bico, probably saw I don't know eight, seven, eight, nine guys you know, make it to the company, but they just, they just couldn't shoot. I mean, some of them, you know, were sent on to fly Snooks or the Aco or, you know, good, good officers, soldiers, aviators. But when we, when we get on in the terminal area on the objective, it, it looks like a fur ball. If you've ever seen a shoot, I mean, we're breaking and shooting and yanking and banking and, and it, it, you know, how potential to get a person sick if they're, no, they're just not used to. it. Or.
2: Well, that yeah. was one of the things that is unique about your book. I think uh, is that it reads many parts of it read like like a literal action movie firefight that two guys that that opposing forces would have on the ground. You know, but sure. you are every bit as active and in the mix as as the ground forces are.
0: Yes, sir. And, you know, the, the AH guys, we have to know every element of the ground floor. So if it's the Rangers maneuvering or the SMU maneuvering or, or whatever, but we have to know because we have to know where every soldier is on the battlefield before we can pull a trigger. Right? You have to. So that's another thing that, you know, takes time for for guys to learn is, you know, hey, you know, we're, we're going to maneuver this side or that side, and this team's going here, and that team's going there, and that company or that fire team. And so, man, it's yeah, it, it's, it gets a little bit busy up there on the objective.
3: Greg, so I we're
0: got, watching out for them.
3: I got a question real quick. I'm just curious how do you see that grease pencil mark at night under night vision goggles?
0: It, it's pretty easy. It will make it a little bit bigger, you know, at night. I mean, it's probably mine was about the size of a quarter. Mm mm-hmm. And, you know, you put it up there and it was, mine was 21 rivets up and then over the inside of the left pedal. And I knew that every time, I mean, you check it and check it and check it and check it. So and all the aircraft were pretty close to the same. And yeah, so that That's some cool. guys use a tape measure or a string or <laughs> to get that pivot right there, same place every time. That's amazing. Yeah, the guys, the guys really shoot. It's incredible to watch them.
2: So... You, uh, so you're at the 160th. Um, about what year is this when you get there? Ninety-three. Ninety-three? Okay.
0: Yes, sir. So, yeah, the guys were in Somalia. And, okay. And that all went down. And? I was in Green Platoon. Okay.
2: It, was that the training platoon?
0: Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, then you spend another. The gun guys about eight to ten months. Again, because you're teaching you're teaching us how to the new guys how to shoot to their standard, which takes time.
2: So Well and is it just the shooting or are they teaching you how to fly in ways that maybe the the, the, the conventional army frowned upon?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And the airframes completely different. There's you know, there's no hydraulics in the helicopter, whereas Every helicopter you come from, the controls are hydraulically assisted. So, you know, yeah, it, it's a hard airframe to, to fly. This it is really all, is. It's
3: all fly by wire
0: No, it's just levers and bell housings. And, you know, you say, here's my hydraulics.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, so, no power steering <laughs> is what you're saying.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. But wow. it, it's an extremely difficult aircraft to. To fly and to learn it's just very very responsive and you know i always try to explain it to folks this is the lamborghini mm-hmm. of you know the ferrari of helicopters i mean it's it's very very maneuverable and it's small the rudder diameter is 27 feet so you know if we we can kind of calculate okay yeah like fellas landed to pick up those guys in Somalia in Battle of the Sea that day. And if I had three or four inches on each side of the Dernal Main Road, you know, uh, they're, they're incredible. They're just great, great helicopter pilots.
2: So between 93 um, when you were in Green Platoon and then 2001, what was your life like at, at the 160th?
0: The op tempo is extremely high. And you're always training uh you got three ranger battalions that you know you're constantly training with, and then the other special operations mostly you know we work with the army special operations units and so yeah you're I think I average like two hundred ninety days a year t d y yeah that's a long long time yeah that's <laughs> up incredible. until one yeah we're we're always learning and and developing, and you know, a lot of You know, the things that go out to the regular Army or to the Marine Corps, to anybody that flies helicopters, we, you know, we've done research and development and and General Hupmacher talked about it a bit on his visit that, you know, we, yes, we do those things. and We want to make better cockpits or better gear, better whatever to help survivability. Of you know, everybody out there, so yeah, you know, it's it's cost a lot of lives in the early days of the unit when yeah, you know, they were trying to figure all this stuff out. Thank god they, you know, they made us better. I was pretty much the second gen, I guess, the end of the second generation,
2: yeah. So, yeah, and and it wasn't just uh, you're flying. But because I know, and we'll get into this when we get into like your first deployment to Afghanistan, but you learn fires, like you, you learned the full gamut of it, correct?
0: Oh, yes. Yes, sir. We're, you know, you're an expert in fire support because again, you have to learn and, and you're, you're just a close knit family because you work with all the fire supporters and all the different colors, green, red, and you know, whoever. And yeah, I mean, you're you are like brothers, and, and then you get to know the ground force and, and other units because, you know, once you're there, you never leave, and you, and you stay there. So you build these relationships and this trust, so to speak, and, of course, you hack on each other, and you make mistakes and do <laughs> things that aren't so right. and uh, But not only do we, not only shooting, but it's learning the standard for navigation in that aircraft. And that's with a map, a compass, and a clock. That's it. No GPS, no electronic devices. And you have to, you know, you have to become an expert at that because our standards, plus or minus 30 seconds, on time, on target, every time. And I've seen guys, back in the old days, guys would crash helicopters to make that plus or minus 30 seconds. I was like, oh, Lord, what are we doing, you know, but. Hey, we got, I got to the target, you know, the it's Like, man, you're almost late. I'm like, no, I made it. Okay. Huh. Let's get those tree branches out of the skids or the wheels or, you know, whatever. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're very dedicated to that mission and to the ground force. Yeah. Lives depend on it.
2: Yeah. yeah. It's funny because you mentioned, when you talk about the fire support, you mentioned green and red, uh, we get to talk about the uh, fire support from blue too here when, uh, when we get to your first deployment. Um, sure. <laughs> so yeah,
0: that didn't turn out so well.
2: Yeah. So your first deployment, can we can we, uh, unless there's yeah. anything in that in, in that time, any notable things that you'd like to talk about? Um, we we can either talk about those, or we can fast forward to uh,
1: to Afghanistan.
0: Sure, sure. No, that was, I mean, our, our time was spent staying razor sharp and and being prepared to, you know, respond to anything that might come up. And, of course, there were many times we were, you know, we were like, come on, man, this is it, this is it, we're going. I mean, guys would not take leave because they were afraid they might miss something. <laughs> you know, the beeper would go off, yeah. we were like, Oh man, no, I
2: can't I can't do that. But, especially when you've been there yeah, very, plus years and you know you've been training all this time and you're waiting, waiting, waiting. I want to do my job. Yeah,
0: and I always told guys be careful what you wish for and then nine eleven came. Yeah. And uh we were busy. We were extremely busy. It was good. It was good. You were with your brothers and you have to go out and kill bad guys every night, so what's better than that?
2: So Tell us what happened on nine eleven not on nine eleven, but what happened with the one sixtieth after the events of nine eleven.
0: Yes, sir. We had I was at Fort Campbell. We had I believe we had a range that day. So range two nine is our other home. That's our exclusive use only range there at Fort Campbell where we do all of our shooting and customers come out and we train there for, you know, three to five days at a time. But we're you know, we're home, we're shooting probably two to three days a week to maintain those standards. And, you know, I always said that shooting is one of the most perishable skills a human has. Now put in there, flying a helicopter, hopping on the radio, listening to the radio and putting the bullets where they're supposed to be every time. So we had two groups out. <clears throat> one was Oconus. One was on the East coast. And I was in the gym that morning. I went in a little late cause we, you know, we work at night, and we're not on the regular Army schedule, so to speak. So we there to get a workout in. And I was on the treadmill, and the guy that run ran the gym there at Campbell was a former SEAL and really, really good dude. But he walked in, and all the TVs were off. And he said, hey, I think you need to see this. And he turned the TV on in front of my treadmill. And I see, you know, this tower, clear blue twenty two and burning, and I'm like, what in the world happened? He goes, I think an airplane flew into it, uh, like a small fixed wing, and I go, well, as an aviator, you know, I'm thinking, how in the Sam hill do you do that? One of the biggest buildings in the world, and then it was just a few seconds later, man, here comes the second one, and my beeper went off, and so yeah, I, I hauled butt out to the airfield, and we started, you know, getting kit together in our our loadout, and we didn't know what was going on, we had no other than what was being reported on TV, Then we did get word of another plane hitting the Pentagon, and then another plane going down to Pennsylvania, and so we just, yeah, we just started our routine, getting the package ready to go wherever we were ordered to go, we kind of had an idea, I think, you know, it was going to be Afghanistan area. And <clears throat> so we, we completed our, or continued our planning, went out to Fort Bragg a couple of times to do planning out there and then came back and we had our mission and we were going to Afghanistan. So we put the task force together and I was, I was out at Fort Bragg, our last planning meeting and the uh, fire support officer from Delta had just left from B squadron was the up squadron. So they, we were all going together and Colonel Switter was a Delta force commander at the time and approached me and he says, Hey Greg, he says, I, I'd really like for you to come over as a fire support officer for the task force. And I was like, ah. I was like, sir, I'm an AH guy. You know, I want to go, I want to go shoot people. And, uh, and he understood and I understood it, it was, I was honored and, you know, that for him to ask me to do that. So my good, good friend, Leon Hansen was the FSNCO, Fire Support Commission Officer for B Squadron. We've been buddies for a long, long time. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a good crew. I mean, it was, of course the guys that didn't want to go, they were poopy faced because everybody wants to go get it on. Right. I mean, you, you just do. That's who we are. That's what we do. Well, that's God's path for us.
2: So you are going to Afghanistan as a as a fire support officer, as a fire yes, coordinator, sir. and not as an AH-6 pilot at this time.
0: That's correct. I was, and I, my commander told me that I would <clears throat> assist and, you know, giving, going on missions with the AHs. Also, I was an FMQ. And, uh, but yeah, he's, He's like, hey, man, you're the right guy for the right job at the right time, at the right place. So guess what? You're it. Yeah, you had been there so, yeah.
2: eight years at that point in time. Is that, is that sort of middle of the road, or is that kind of a senior position at that point in time?
0: For the fires?
2: Well, no, just for or, you. I, I don't know how long pilots are, what their longevity there is. So with you being there eight years, were you one of the more, more soft yes, season guys?
0: Yes, sir. Yeah. Or more senior guys.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, you, I mean, you
0: guys spend 12, 15, 16 years there. Yeah. So, well, yeah, that's your home.
2: And I'm not, I mean, a lot of people probably don't know this, um, but being a helicopter pilot, especially sort of in the types of frames, airframes you guys were in and, and flying the types of missions, it's hard on the body. A lot of hard landings, a lot of compressed spines. Sure. Like, I, I mean, it's, it's as hard on the body as being on the ground, being in the infantry or, or whatever. Yes, sir. I,
0: I'd say so. I mean, our, my kit weighed 60 pounds that I wore in combat. And we always flew with our kit and our plates and vests. And anytime we live fire, you had to wear it. And yeah, it's good training. And it teaches, especially the new guy, it'll, it'll teach him where to put stuff. Of course, we have SOPs, you know, this goes here, that goes there. So I can reach over and, when it's dark and I know there's a magazine or a tourniquet or a radio or whatever the case. Right. And but yeah, it's especially wearing night vision goggles on a, you know, on a helmet, all those years, that everybody gets the night off of neck, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, it's hard on backs and yeah. knees and
2: shoulders. And, yeah, and, and one more yep. thing uh, before we move forward is you when you talk about going to the range and shooting, and then you you mentioned you know where the magazines are, you guys would carry your M4s and <laughs> actually engage with M fours sometimes if if need be, correct? Yes.
0: Oh yes. Yeah, we might might have dropped a grenade or two out of the cockpit also. So
2: Yeah. Yeah, for those of you <laughs> who have seen a little bird, kind of just look one up, but they're they're open side. There's no doors, there's there's nothing. It's mm-hmm. just yeah, wide open. So um yes,, so you deploy uh as as the fire support uh, coordinator, and where yes, where did you guys go, and what what did you spin up for?
0: Yeah, we went to Masirah Island, it's a small island there off of Oman, and it it was ironic, I think i I'd, I'd said to the battle staff there one evening that, hey, you know what, it was i don't know twenty years earlier is when mm-hmm. colonel Beckwith and the Delta guys departed from the same airfield to go do Desert One. And we were departing to go into Afghanistan and get some terrorists.
2: And so which terror-
0: yeah, we stayed there.
2: I'm sorry, was there a specific terrorist that you were going after at that point in time?
0: Oh, Bin Laden and his crew.
2: Okay.
0: Yeah, Zarqawi, and, or not Zarqawi, but uh, Omar and, yeah, Bin Laden and, yeah, just whoever was, out there looking for a fight—that's who we we went and got it on with. So and very clear, very clear mission statement.
2: And what what was the first mission that you guys flew out there?
0: Uh, well, my first mission as the fires guy was to go and recce the route that the Chinooks were going to take. They were going to launch off a ship with Delta for our. Official mission. We we've been conducting missions for some time prior to that was nineteen October, two thousand one. It was Rhino Gecko three seven five Rangers did a an airborne combat assault on the Rhino to secure that landing area, and then of course Gecko or B Squadron went in. We had thought that Omar may be there and maybe Bin Laden. So that was our first target there west of Kandahar. And but I had take I had flown several missions to reconnaissance the route that the Chinooks and the DAPs would take to the target and cleared them and picked a route for those guys and of course went to the ship with it and made sure they were all good with it and they they were so yeah, cleared it. Cleared route all the way into the objective area on both both objectives, and uh, yeah, so we just planned off that and went from there. And I I did several more missions just to set the conditions in the battle space and engage targets, you know, any any targets that we could find, all just all over that southern desert and then Kandahar over all the way west to Gah. Do, do you mind? There,
2: do you mind telling us a little bit about Gecko because that that was quite a read in your book? And I mean, from you know the briefing, uh, your unwelcome guest. Um, uh, if you want to tell us about that, and we don't mind throwing shade <laughs> at Blue here at all, um, we do it all the time. Yeah. Um, oh goodness, and um, and really, sort of some of some of what happened on target, what what you did, like. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind walking us through it.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> you well, know, there's always Mr. Murphy. <laughs> he always raises his ugly head. <laughs> and it, <laughs> yeah, burp. <clears throat> but, I mean, we, we did our brief. We did our plan. We did our brief. Went a couple trips to the ship. And, you know, final final stuff with Leon and and the guys out there. And then I came back. And so we took three five AC-130U model gunships. Three were going to have them task organized, three going to get-go, two going to Rhino to cover the Rangers. And, and then we could use spares and backups, you know, if somebody broke. Or, so we had to get fuel and to do the mission set. So we had some ta- Air Force tankers were to meet us Over a point, over the ocean, at this very specific time. And it was all time driven. Mission is. So there were no, we get on station, there's no tankers. And I'm like, oh crap, there's no tankers and there's no tankers. And we're like, you know, this is a national strategic mission (laughs) and you cannot, we can't afford to be late because the Chinooks were taken off from the ship. a lot of pieces, I had like, I don't know, 80-some aircraft that were going to be overhead, bombers from B-1s to Tornadoes and F-16s and B-2s and B-52s. And I, I just, oh, I was just beside myself. So we all get on the radios, we're calling, we're calling. And so they were late, and they finally showed up and we were we were late, we were behind. I think it was close to thirty five forty minutes. That's a long time, but we had several hundred miles to make it up and I finally got I was talking to the aircraft commander on the on the lead tanker and She wanted me to verify who we were through challenges and passwords. (laughs) I'm like, look, lady, what are the chances of five AC-130s are going to show up at the same place, and you're late? You better give us gas, or we're going to shoot you down. I ain't kidding. So we back and forth, so we finally got our gas. And and then we, the NAV, I mean, everybody on that AC-130, we were, we were doing calculations. And I was at an E6B, the old whiz wheel that pilots used to figure fuel and burn rates and times. And, of course, the nav, he was on his computer. The, I think the FOCO, the fire guy, he was on his. And I was nugging numbers because I, I got to a point where I'd have to call the flight and tell them to drop kick. You know, I didn't want them holding over Indian territory. You know, bad guy country in Afghanistan. So there were a lot of things, there was a lot of stress. And of course, you know, we're we're calling back to the jock and giving them updates, and and they they were calling quite a bit. And I was like, hey, look, just give us a few minutes to you know work through this. And and I I believe we either got a I was praying for a tailwind. So. <laughs> We could we could gain some time, gain some airspeed along that route, and sure enough, uh, The aircraft commander he we were lead AC-130, and he says, "Hey man, I'm I'm gonna put the pedal to the metal," you know, and he hammered those engines, and I I swear he was running in the red for a long time, but we we made up our time, and you know I got to a decision point where I was gonna have to call the flight of Chinooks. You tell them, "Hey, you're going to have to hold, you know, in route or whatever the case, and then drop kick the tot time on target." There, the objective. Now, Plus, the Rangers would have to, you know, drop kick and hold. And I mean, it was.
2: You also, you also had an unwelcome guest, right, or a, a surprise guest? I would say on this flight.
0: Yes, or somewhat. He was a fighter pilot. He was the. TF Blue, the SEAL team, fires guy, nobody had ever seen him. Or he hadn't been to any planning missions or briefs or he just showed up at the AC 130 on mission night. And of course, of course I was giving him a hard time and the guys on the aircraft were, the aircraft commander, Old Swede, he, and he was, he got the name from being a big, big dude, you know, and he told him, Hey, you just sit in that corner over there and don't say anything and uh, so yeah that was you know we were we were kind of concerned about that and another strap hanger so to speak i'll just say it and And, yeah and we later on that night though it it we almost had an extremely serious incident because he jumped in on the radio didn't have any situational awareness as to what was going on you know he hadn't been following the battle and uh yeah, he, you know, I'll just tell you, he called in some, I think it was four F-18s to drop bombs on a a target reference point that was right on the route of the Chinooks. And the Chinooks were coming out of the target. And I, I heard something, you know, I was talking and listening, and they were exfilling at that time. And it had been a very successful mission so far that night, other, other than the aircraft having multiple bullet holes in them and
1: being a parent can be really challenging child and family resource network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting visit child and family resource today being a parent can be really challenging it's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit Child and ChildAndFamilyResourceNetwork.org today.
0: And I'd heard something, you know, cleared hot or, I can't remember the exact verbiage, but, I, you know, for sure one was a fire pilot, and I kind of looked over to the right, and I could see this guy's mouth moving. Oh, boy! And I, you know, I said, hey, who's that who on the net? And the guy said, shut up, I'm working on <laughs> the I said, the Chinooks are coming out. And I, I glanced at my, I knew that TRP, I glanced down at my map, and I just, I jumped up, and I said, knock it off, knock it off, knock it off, ceasefire, ceasefire, ceasefire. I put out on all the nets. And, and I heard the lead fire bomb pilot say, roger that, knock it off. But yeah, the guy was working a bombing mission, and it would, the bombs would have dropped on those six Chinooks full of yeah. Delta operators.
2: And you had a friendly chat mm. with him at that point? Pardon? You had a friendly chat with him at that point?
0: Yes, it, it was a very two-sided, friendly chat that I had with that young man. Yes. true sure enough.
2: Uh, read the book if you'd like to hear the real story. <laughs> yeah. Read, read the book. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. It wasn't very friendly at all. I wasn't a kind chief.
2: <laughs> yeah. Mm. So, um, and also, uh, definitely read the book because the, the detail that you go into about that whole operation, the level of air, the ground force movement, I mean, it, it is staggering. What's going on, and mm-hmm. how much air you're controlling, and how much gun in there like how much ordnance was dropped on that objective that night?
0: It was unbelievable. It, it really was. I was just, I had a you know a couple moments or a combat pause, so to speak, and of course said prayers for the guys going in on the objective and the guys flying in that in that nasty, nasty environment. It's you know one of the most dangerous things we do is take off and land. It was always brown out, yeah. and, you know, we've had incidents and accidents, and it, it's just, it's hard, and, uh, but yeah, I was, you know, I was very honored to be there. It was, it was the longest aerosol I've ever conducted in the history. Guys flew over a thousand miles that night, and just to the target, not to include follow on and getting back to the ship. That was a long day. She yeah, wore. were
2: your, uh, brother age six pilots, were were they up in the air and, and flying that up?
0: No, sir, they just we didn't have the legs, you know, to get us there. And of course we tried. We <laughs> we came over there we were continued like, hey, we can land on C one thirties, you know, and push out and be on target and preparatory fires or we can take the outer perimeter and Yeah, the boss said no. We're not going to do it.
2: So you were the first one amongst your peers who actually got some, got into the action then.
0: Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. I had a good friend of mine, Jim Hosey. He was an AH pilot there in B company. And, and I told him when we came back from Bragg on that last trip, I said, man, he goes, what's up? And I, I said, well, I've been tasked as, you know, the TF sword part, one of the fire support officers. And he was like, dude, he, I'm telling you, you're going to be in the middle of that stuff before any of us see anything. I'm like, no, I don't believe so. But now yeah, he was right.
2: <laughs> <coughs> he was right. Uh, so, what was what was the uh, the rest of Iraq like for you? What or are are there any notable operations that you want to talk about or? I mean, did the little... In Iraq? Yeah, or, I mean, Afghanistan, I'm sorry, because the second operation was in uh, Lashkar Gai, correct? Or the second operation? Yes,
0: correct. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the big... Yeah, Major Drew, or Major um, Rear, and that group, you know, they, then our focus, you know, we, we had Bin Laden on the run and had some locations for him. And we, the AHs, Got into the fight after that, and they were going out pretty much every night. And I flew some missions on that, and uh, we picked up, I guess notable, we picked up Mr. Karzai that uh, first time and brought him back and then took him back to do his thing with the Northern Alliance. And, you know, and I, of course, from the north, we were in the south, you know, fifth group was up there kicking ass and taking names and man, those guys, you know, they just did an incredible job and and um but no we, we pretty much went into the battle space and killed the bad guys. That was that was our mission that had been given to us. Yeah. And it was Twenty second SAS and you know, Task Force Sword and then the Task Force to the North with Fifth Group and you know, when I, and I tell folks that I even made the statement, I said, you know, we did in nine weeks what the Russians couldn't do in eight years. Yeah. Literally. We did. It. I mean they were a very small specialized group of
2: men. Yeah. There were nights when between the ground force and your air assets, I mean hundreds of uh Taliban fighters and AQ fighters like just sh them.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, absolutely. It was a good time. Bad okay. people.
2: Yeah. Um and there was an incident, was it last year guy where uh everybody was assigned an officer as as a supervisor or uh what was was that, that particular operation?
0: No no that wasn't that. That it
2: wasn't that one. No, it wasn't that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, sir. I think yeah, it might
0: have been it might have been yeah that, the op and last regard that's correct yeah, yeah that's correct
2: and, and what, how did that come down what happened there because people who are not familiar with the military won't really get sure. this but people who have been in the military will completely understand the lack of logic that went into this decision
0: well and you, and you have to understand that at that level the, the commander puts full faith and confidence in the warrant officers we are the subject matter experts And flying and planning and working with the ground force and whatever the case and there aren't very many commission officers so we're kind of under the old H series where a major is a company commander not a captain like in the regular army you know platoon leader is a captain in the 160th not a lieutenant but then there's you know two captains and then a major company commander and then the rest are warrant officers so and, and the other thing is to put it in perspective is that I think at that time I'd have to go back and look, but there are probably only about 18 or 20 FMQ pilots, combat ready pilots per company. That's not very many to yeah. man. Yeah. You know, it, it's really not. And if a guy gets hurt or something happens, then you know, we're we just really have to double up and make sure things get done. So we, we, our first mission out was out to, like you said, out to Lashkar Gah. There was a bunch of mechanized and there were tanks and there were Taliban, there were Al-Qaeda training camps. I mean, it was a target-rich environment. And and again, I was out in the AC, you know, several times a week and engaging targets and setting conditions for follow-on missions. But so we had, we had planned uh, an, uh, an attack mission. We had we had the location of some forces out there between Kandahar and Lashkar Gah. Lashkar to the west, and so at the last minute, the commander decided to put a platoon leader in in the team. <laughs> so it booted a warrant. You know, uh, I mean, our and our guys were. I don't think I think one was FMQ. Yeah, he was an FMQ, but the others were BMQ. So that didn't sit real well with the warrants. Yeah, you know, this is serious business, and we're the subject matter experts, and we're the professionals, and we're the ones that need to be flying these missions.
2: It's They're sort of dangerous. Like when, sort of like when the S three is is in the in the chalk for the jump for the for the airfield yeah. seizure.
0: Oh yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah. There are the Intel guys sitting in the jump seat of the Chinook or whoever. Now, nothing bad on the Intel guys.
2: Was it was it Last God where you won the air metal air metal with uh with a V?
0: That was no, that was Kandahar when I was with Jamie Weeks. Okay. Good. That was my first okay. combat mission that I flew with Jamie okay. When we yeah, we ran into it it must have been a I don't know if it was like a a remain overnight site for Talakong, as we call them, or man, there was, there were several in there that I'd gone down a, like a little draw and look, you know, we were out hunting. We were just west of Kandahar and it just looked like a good place tactically to me where dudes would be hanging out or vehicles. And yeah, if we found them, probably 60 to 80 guys. So yeah, we, and then our, we'd split just to cover more. Terrain, and the other AH went coming to the north of us, and they were they ran into a bunch of guys up there. Yeah, and Jamie and I ran into several. They, I think they fired probably, I know at least three or four RPGs at us before we kind of figured out what that whooshing sound was, because neither one of us had been out there doing the deed. And yeah. then a twelve seven opened up, and a fourteen opened up, and then we were like, "Uh oh." <laughs> time to go to work boys yeah so yeah we we killed all of them so shot they, some of them with our rifles
2: so they have anti-aircraft that's what you're talking about when you're talking about like 12 7, 14 right they mm-hmm. have anti aircraft yes, opening up on you and instead of saying okay we need to get out of here you say it's time to go to work
0: yes yeah it's time to go find them and kill them and you did that that's what we do that's what we do yes sir
2: yep Yeah, we did. That's amazing. So, what, uh, I'm not sure how much longer your deployment in Afghanistan was, or if there are any notable moments you want to talk about or tell us about?
0: No, sir. It was, I mean, for us, and we had pretty much gotten the word that, you know, our next priority would be Iraq. Okay. So, we were going to, you know, jump out of there and then start the planning process for our, our next mission, which was, you know, Saddam's realm and his hierarchy and then WMDs or, you know, whatever the case was. So we knew we, we got home and yeah, immediately started the planning process for that, for that next operation.
2: Okay. So you start that planning process, you find yourself moving out in, in uh, February, March, mm-hmm. sometime around there of 2003.
0: Yes, sir. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we went out southwest where the terrain was very much like Iraq or that part of the world. We had mountains, we had desert, we had, you know, all, all, all sorts of nasty terrain out there to, to operate and train in so yeah we we continued that for several months and you know had a good plan put together and it was all of course we operate at night and all under the cover of darkness and away from you know prying eyes so to speak or whatever it may be and yep we uh we we prepared for deployment in february of 03. okay
2: and then where did you deploy to We deployed to
0: RR, Saudi Arabia, and up there, northern, kind of north-central Saudi Arabia, right on, not far from the Iraqi border, from the berm there, and uh, that was us, and I think we took eight, we took four AHs to OEF for Afghanistan, and we took eight AHs to Iraq, just so we could cover all... You know, three Ranger battalions, Delta, and all the others that you know we had worked some with Fifth Group for that planning process. So you know, we wanted to be able to provide enough fire support for those forces that needed us at that time.
2: And RR was probably an <clears throat> oasis, right? A a, a
0: oh man, yeah, it was swimming pools. It was on call breakfast. It was ah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 indoor gym you know great cow hall uh no it was none of that it was we got on the ground of course you know we're army guys so nothing's there and we find some old ratty tent that was rolled up in a ball and started setting it up and you know it was of course it was dark we we landed and put the aircraft to bed and uh, prepared everything, PCI, pre-combat inspection, make sure the aircraft are locked and cocked or loaded, weapons are good to go, and, you know, that's always our priority. And uh, we'll finish our part, crew chief's armament dogs, you know, they're still going over the aircraft, making sure the weapon systems are all good to go. We had GAL-19s, the three-barrel 50 cal also, so that's just another tool for a toolbox or a kit bag that we can deploy. And uh, yeah, so we we started making a home with the Rangers and everybody else that was camped out there at RR and started our planning processes and you know start building and we we had to have a planning area and a briefing area so those were those were first to go up so yeah it was a good
2: time. Um, so it was Iraq where you earned the the title as the uh world's greatest counterpuncher. World's greatest counterpuncher. <laughs> yeah,
0: okay. I, I'm sure it was. It was Uh so I earned a, I earned a lot of <laughs> Yeah, go ahead, Dave.
2: No, so uh <laughs> so w- was your first big op there was that Haditha Dam or or had you done things prior to that?
0: Yes, for our first our first big operation, it was pretty much just the AHS. We, we had, our D-Day was 19 March, where the, the rest of the force was 21 March. So we went out, we hit VISOB, so visual observation posts, radar sites, to open those corridors for fast movers and the main force that was, you know, getting ready to attack on the 21st. So we spent those first two nineteenth and twentieth. You know, we were out every night, four teams, two AHs each, and then other special operations forces were moving north and you know, just all over looking for scuds or any of those potential targets that could hurt us or hurt hurt the attacking force when that started. When you're but, yeah, we
2: I'm sorry. When you're out
0: no, go ahead. in a
2: little bird, I mean, you're very exposed, right? Mm-hmm. And and you're out there, two birds or, or four birds, by yourselves, deep behind enemy lines. Do you feel vulnerable or do you feel like, do you feel like you're fast and low and, and hard to hit? Like, what's the sensation that you have?
0: Well, it's dark. And that, that's the first thing. I mean, we're... We are night stalkers, not day stalkers. Right. So <laughs> bad, bad things happen to us when we go stalking in the day. But no, it's, you know, we use the train, We use our speed. We use our, our, our training and, you know, whatever we can to, you know, to make sure we're successful. And, and in our teams that went out, we configured. So we had an MH with us, little bird, and he had a flare pod on his bird. So we
1: went we
0: went back in time.
1: Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today.
0: Kind of. In, in the old pink teams from Vietnam. So a scout and a gun. So, you know, a, a roach and a cobra. Or two cobras. He would go out front and use the flare to, you know, positively identify hot spots and targets. And of course, we were on our maps, and everything was checked and double checked and triple checked. And then we had some, we had some A10s overhead. So how we configured them, and I and I, I love the the concept, but so we weren't, you know, really by ourselves. I mean, we had other folks there, but that was the other reason for the MH little bird that you know, if something did happen to one of the AH, then they could land, pick us up, and take us back to our arc So we would shoot the target, engage the target, and then when dash two would break off the trail AH, the A-10s would be tipped in, in their gun run, and, and as soon as we were clear, and they'd start hammering with 30 or drop a bomb or, you know, because that's when we're most vulnerable is in our brakes, uh-huh. trying to get back around. And they're, they're pretty quick. I mean, they're only a few seconds, but still, there were some very large compounds that we hit. And it, it was, and hear that gun go off, it was just warm and fuzzy. And I, I'll never forget their call sign was Shiner. They were from a Texas Guard unit. And yeah, so they were they were great, great guys and we were just glad to, you know, all be a part of the team. Yeah. That's and right. that was our first two first two nights from the twenty first. Nice. We sat down and then we started you know, started going deeper and deeper for more visual observations and our our intent was to take buyout Baghdad International Airport. So they're in Baghdad. Dom International, it was called, and, and uh, yeah, to get the force there and then start hunting the deck of fifty-five and any other emer- emerging targets that would come. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was busy.
2: It, yeah, and and so then, but uh, so Haditha, because I, I know that was a huge op that that you wrote yes. in your book. Um,
0: can you- yeah, that's the biggest chapter in the books yeah. about Haditha.
2: Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: We got we got the the mission to go to go up north with three seventy five to camp out with the Rangers for a few days, and <clears throat> there were some other missions going on simultaneously that we got bumped off of. But it is what it is, and so we went up to H one where three seventy five did an airborne combat assault. There was an airfield up there, and that's west of Aditha Dam, which. Is one of the largest dam structures in the world. I think it's three miles, I think three to five miles wide and about 300 feet tall. I mean, it, it's a very big structure. It's hydroelectric. So they provide electricity, everything down, you know, the Euphrates and the Tigris all the way to Baghdad. And it was a, it was the most key piece of terrain in Iraq. So the, the, the mission was take hold the dam, clear the dam. And then I think it was an armor force was supposed to come relieve leave us in place that next day. And so we got up there and did some short planning with 375 and they went over, they jumped in, secured the airfield. We came in on C-17 offloaded and the rangers drove. They went over by, by land. And uh, then we linked up with them when they got there, and it was uh, it was quite a sight. <laughs> That's all I can say. When I I had I had pulled pulled up the radios, and I could hear the FSNCO first fort sergeant for three seventy five on the dam. They were in a west blocking position. I think there were five or six rangers there, and Every time he keyed the mic, I could hear the gunfire, automatic gunfire, machine gunfire get every time just get more intense, more intense, more intense and I noticed that particular f s n c o was you know we were close and good friends and known each other for a long time. Well, you know his voice started going up in the octaves, and you just know of working with the guys all the time, same time that okay. Shit's going down, and we got to get there. It was about a about a seventeen minute flight from the airfield to the dam, and I I was so 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 angry at the radios. I couldn't talk to anybody, and yeah, you know, I could hear them. And I finally, you know, I looked at the guy I was flying with, and I said. I, I just had all I could take and I said, a man standing on the moon in 1968 can talk to Houston, Texas and I can't talk to my fire supporter, you know, 10 miles away. And I finally got on the, I, I got on the satellite radio and I pushed all traffic aside. I said, this is an emergency. And I could hear Mo, you know, asking where are the AH is, where are the AH is. They were about to get overrun by a very large force. It's about a company size element. And you know, finally, I got in touch with him. We were about three minutes out, and I said, "Hey, we're we're less than three minutes," you know. And he's like, "You know, I'm afraid this is going to be over in three minutes." And I mean, it was very, very intense. And there's a huge lake north of the dam. I can remember we we hit the lake, got right on the water, and then bumped up. And when we bumped up. It was just, it was one of the most incredible sights I'd ever seen. There were just tracers just everywhere. Of course, company of rangers and a few of the Delta guys were on the dam. And then they had folks going through it, breaching and clearing that dam. It was a huge, huge structure. And, uh, yeah, we saw a very large size element attacking that west blocking position. And when we shot, we shot approximately 12 meters. In front of that friendly, front of that r- ranger blocking position. That's how. I mean, it was just yeah. about to be a knife fight for that time. So God, God washed over us and gave us some tailwind to get us there a lot faster. And yeah, so we we killed that. I don't know. There's probably seventy, eighty enemy troops coming up to that. Blocking position, then immediately got a call for fire from the east blocking position. Another ranger, and it's—I remember chuckling because it's you know these rangers we and us too we we beat into everybody's head that standard call for fire. Or, hey, you, this is me from my position. You know, three six zero degrees, four hundred meters, marked by. You know, blah, blah, blah. Well, and that's that's what he was. You know, under stress. Same thing, a very large force was attacking their, their side and, and flanking. You know, standard call for fire. And I just, I was like, okay, I'm just going to let him spit it out. I said, I, I saw him. We saw him. and I'm like, Hey, brother, I have your position. Just mark the target. And he, he's like, Oh yeah. Okay. So here come lasers. And, you know, we, we went over there and serviced those knuckleheads trying to. Trying to kill our Rangers on the east side. And then it was just, it was constant for the next, those suns started coming up. I think we shot nine, 10 loads there at the dam that night. It was.
2: You'd go bingo or Winchester and then you'd have to go back uh, and, and reload and then.
0: Yes, sir. We had, we had had a little, we had had the Rangers put in a small bar not too far from the dam. It was just a couple minute turnaround. There were four loads there. And we, we burn it up, I mean, quick. And I can remember getting on the, on sat, calling back to the talk to see if we could get another aircraft. Cause I, you know, we, we have to manage that ammo and we have to forecast and, you know, kind of figure out what we're going through at the time, what we're going to need for the next few hours or several hours. And I, I was going to see if somebody could bring us some more, some more ammo cause we, we went through that four load fart pretty quick we had gas there and some G bags so we land pilots jump out and you know we just we load up the rockets and the guns and, and then go get back in the fight and then the other loads we had to fly all the way back to h1 so they had a farp set up there for us and i swear man those guys look like a india nascar pit crew man they're as soon as you land they're it's going it's we're in now there in under three minutes, probably, full load, full gas, and back to the fight.
3: I uh, I just want to point out to the viewers out there, I really encourage them to read Greg's book about all of this from the 160th okay. perspective. And, and just go and do some research on Haditha Dam and that operation. In general, to understand it, that was a very significant battle that took place there. And I I missed it because I was actually in uh, the Ranger indoctrination program during the invasion. So I was a little bit behind. I wasn't there. But when I did get there, I got to hear all the stories firsthand from the Rangers who were there on the ground. And uh, like one guy I know who was a medic leapfrogging forward with his platoon sergeant as the Rangers, the squads were bounding forward. And they were right behind them, yeah. and so this guy is a, a ranger medic with a platoon sergeant looping deck cord around the barrels of the uh, anti aircraft guns, and then like popping the time fuse, mm-hmm. bounding to the next position as it blows up behind them. So I like, felt like <coughs> they were doing some commando shit out there, and, and they were.
0: Yeah, it was crazy. It was it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen, or I had ever even imagined. It was
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, it, it was a busy night, and you know we we nobody was killed we had I think three injured I think three rangers were injured uh, when it all was over with and smoke cleared we got them out got them to the cache we escorted one of our Chinooks in there a couple nights later and dropped off food and ammo and water the guys on the dam but yeah we I think we wound up being there for a week our initial vision was 24 hours you know but, yeah, it is what it is. When
2: you're in the thick of things like that in such a, like, a, a target-rich environment, how long does it take you to go through the, the armament that you're carrying?
0: Yeah, that, that's a very good question. We, we manage it. I mean, I can, I can average 12 to 14 engagements. You know, managing my minigun, managing, cause we carry 14 rockets. So, and not every target will need a rocket. Not every target will need minigun or gal, you know, the 50 cal. So it's up, it's up to that each individual attack pilot flying, you know, at that time as to how they, you know, that's what we're trying to do is to look at that target. What can we use to destroy that target? You know, or is it troops in the open? Is it light armor? Is, you know things like that. So generally, yeah, I'd say fourteen, fifteen engagements. If you, uh, you know, if you're managing right, plus our M4s and and we were dropping hand grenades on groups of folks too. So it's very, very effective. Yeah, very effective.
3: So
2: in a very thick fight like that, I mean, fourteen engagements really is not a whole. It's not you a you whole lot through of time that on like, target.
3: What, like an hour maybe in a heavy firefight.
2: No, it, you'd go through that and,
0: in a heavy like the dam. Fifteen minutes—that's
2: yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: amazing. <laughs> Ten minutes. I mean, you're turning, and mm-hmm. you know, you go from one side to the other side, and and the the thing that struck me were the amount of wires there, because I guess somebody forgot to tell us about all the electrical wires. That it looked like a spider web. So, you know, we had to make sure we were. Up higher than you know we kind of planned on being, and uh, and then they they would start to get mortared. well in that in that river bottom, you know that river will wash and it'll it'll make like i guess sand little sand dunes well those guys would sneak in there with the mortar crew and you know start a lot of mortars at the rangers well so I got the looking down river and I could see the flash coming out of the tube. wow. So I'd say, hey, I, we all carry little commander's pointers, you know, little lasers, because it's really fast. We carry more vests. And, you know, whoever's flying, the other guy, it's like, there's a flash. We, you know, okay, I got it. So we just fly down the river. And sure enough, there, we, there we'd be, and we, you know, engage them with many. And then go to the next one. You only know, we see another flash and another flash. Yeah, so it, it was a busy time. It was a busy
2: night. I, I am Every there. night. I imagine that, in addition, just to just to the the, the battle stress, the stress of combat, it sounds mm-hmm. like you had you had a real sense of responsibility for the troops on the ground. So, I mean, did that? Add, uh, how much pressure did that add to you when you were doing your turnarounds when you were going back to the FARP and things like that?
0: Yeah, man, it, it's. Again, you know, we have these very, very close relationships with the with all the guys and Jack. You know, Dave. You know, and I mean, our, our you know, to me, for me, my job was to protect those guys. We were the archangels, or however you want to yeah. look at or call it. But you know, my whole mission in life was to protect those. Those were my brothers. Those were my buddies. And and you know, one time we were we were hitting a bunch of targets in Palusia and the. The Delta Commander asked asked us, asked me if we would please not kill all the guys at the target so the guys would have somebody to shoot at when they when they got there and I was like I'm like sir my job is to protect my brothers so that's what we're doing but yeah that that was me personally is you know I, I had I was very driven to to support them and protect them
2: yeah
0: every time every time yeah.
2: Um, yeah, I you. The battle is in the book is phenomenal. It's significant, and then there's there. Oh, good. Yeah, good. and then there are a couple other uh, you know things that happen. But can we go to uh, Amaria? Amaria.
0: Oh, that was another walk in the park day. I, I remember that one. Yeah, so that was nineteen. 19- March two thousand and four. That's the specific date we're referring to. Yeah, we oh man, it was you know, we were hitting Ramadi, Fallujah, Amaria. It was a triangle out west of Baghdad. And oh three, oh four, oh five, oh six, you guys it, it was wild, wild west out there. It was a lot of Al Qaeda and they were having foreign fighters just just by the droves. Come into that area, and we had hit a target in Fallujah the night of the 18th through that period of darkness, and got some information off that target that there was another guy that we were looking for that would be at a house in Fallujah at 10 that morning. So you know, we were like, "Daytime. We had done no day mission since 3 October '93." In the Battle of the Black Sea, and so Sergeant Major just told us, "Hey, you guys, just you know, go out there and land. We're going to drive to this house, get this guy, or you know, look for him. And you know, if something comes up, we'll we'll just call you. So you know, it's just a couple minute response to if they needed us, we could get there. But he didn't want to expose us for the daytime, so I hit that target, got the guy. So they came back and they told us, "Hey, go back to Biop, go back to Baghdad International Airport, and go down for a while." So we did, and it was it was this after twelve. We got a call that there was, and then off of that target, they got intel that there was another guy we were looking for in Amaria, which was south of Palusia. So, over the previous weeks, or been. I think seven helicopters shot down in that triangle between Ramadi, Fallujah, and Ameria. And I, I don't think there were any survivors. There's been a couple of Chinooks and 58s and Blackhawks. So bad, bad place. And so there was a tick with that recce team. So we jumped in the aircraft to, you know, go help them. And they're like, hey, they're in trouble. Troops in contact was a call and we just assumed they'd been ambushed coming out of that target so we got on station it was 13.15 local one fifteen pm there in Iraq of course it was daylight and I mean every one of us the hair was standing up on our necks and, but we're like hey we're going so you know, if they need us then we're going to be there for them and got on station and long story short it was We're getting ready to exfil, and I got hit with a missile that I never saw. And it was, it it came to be, it was an SA-16 system. So that's a pretty highly advanced system for that time period. And they didn't even think there were any in the country, SA-7s and, you know, things like that. But I have a theory about all that. I talk about it in the book, but yeah, I was in a climbing right-hand turn and when the missiles hit and it has a proximity fuse, so what a proximity fuse does, for those of you that don't know, is they'll set it to a distance, so like three feet or 10 feet or whatever, and then that fuse will detonate, so they get maximum shrapnel into the engine or into the aircraft whatever they're shooting at shooting the missile at it's pretty advanced it's a heat seeker so it, it goes for the engine mm-hmm. when it shot actually two of the guys they saw the shot from a two-story building on the very west side of the mill there and and it hit and it was just it was a huge explosion I mean it sounded like you know big breach and charge or you know a, a mortar Pretty close proximity, and this—I remember out of the corner of my eye, I saw this—you know—this flame went by me and my co-pilot. So the left seat said, "Yeah, this like this meter-long white-hot rod went right by my head." So it—it kind of got shot at an angle, and then hit the end, detonated, and hit the aircraft. And of course, the big explosion. So that was a clue. Right there I was like, Uh oh <laughs> Then things got real quiet, you know, the engine quit running and and uh you have a you have warnings in, in the aircraft. So if you get a low engine RPM or low rotor, they start beeping and I was I was just thinking to myself, I was like, Man, I wish those things would shut the heck up. I know, I just I'm hit, I know the engine quit, I know I'm in an auto rotation and, and I, I've got this. I'm good, but at that second, and the best way I can explain this is it was like a like a a movie that went frame by frame by frame. I mean, and I understand the physiological effects under stress, and, and we start dumping adrenaline and all these things start going. You guys have been there, and but yeah, it, it was. And my biggest concern was there's nothing to judge or hype. Out there for, you know, an airplane guy or a, or a helicopter pilot, especially doing an emergency procedure as an auto rotation, you know, you need to use those things to start your decel because there's, there's very particular things that we have to do as a pilot to get that aircraft safely on the ground. So at at 75 feet, you start a progressive D cell to bleed off that airspeed. Then you hold that till 15 feet. You pull initial with a collective. So that puts a little bit of pitch in the rotor blade to kind of cushion you to soften that, that approach down. And then I do remember, you know, I I said to myself, I want a real aggressive D cell because I want very little ground run. I don't. You know, I didn't know what was down there. I didn't know what the ground was like. And again, I was, I was watch, watching the radar altimeter and my rotor. I, I remember my rotor getting real, real high, like one on five point something. So I put a little more collective in, you know, to get it under control. Cause if you don't control it, it can just spin off the helicopter and then, then you don't have anything. And, uh, yeah, so, I kept glancing at the radar altimeter, and and the whole time I could, you know, I heard a few radio calls, and but you're just so focused at a task at hand, and I'm, you know, of course when that hit, a big explosion, I was like, okay, it's time to go to work, so I get it in trim, you know, step on that pedal, control my rotor, watch my altitude, 75 feet, I started my D cell, and then 15 feet, I leveled it. Because I think it to myself, I was real heavy, I was full of gas, full of ammo, and I had a tailwind. <laughs> I, had, I had the worst conditions I could have to conduct an auto-rotation in that helicopter. And that that particular helicopter falls like a grease crowbar when you're not loaded. I mean, they just don't, I mean, they just, they sink at twenty six, twenty seven hundred feet per minute. So I was about 165 feet above the ground when the missile hit. I went a climbing right hand turn. I was headed southwest. I remember because I just swooped the boys, you know, and kind of did the wave. <laughs> we're like, we're out of here, you know. And and I, you know, I said, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna pull everything I have right before I touch down. That's what I did. And we touched down. And uh, the other aircraft said, "Man, it was it was the prettiest auto rotation he had ever seen." <laughs> I was like, okay, that's good. We touched down and we slid probably about thirty-five meters, and the skids went down a bit of a slope. Of course, I'm thinking to myself, oh yes, we got this. You know, I'm going to get this thing stopped. And as soon as we touched down, though, it you know that dust and dirt just filled the cockpit, and you, you can't see, and uh, the skids stuck in some soft dirt. So we started to roll end over end. We rolled multiple times, and I think at some point I was I was knocked out for a short time, and the co-pilot was, and I came to, and of course you know we we came to rest inverted, so upside down, and the helicopter was on fire, and again two of the guys had seen the missile shot. So they immediately started to suppress that building. One was a ranger and the other was one of the Delta guys. And then the other AH went to work, you know, shooting, trying to suppress stuff back on that side because it just kind of stirred a hornet's nest at that time. And, you know, any time we have an event like that, you know, parachute or fast roping or in a helicopter, you're going to go through those checks. Checks! <laughs> Okay, i can move my toes i can move my feet my legs are kind of working check my package okay it's good my arms and so i i am just going through these you know and it's all slow motion and i look over at the co-pilot he's got blood all over his face so i you know i think to myself well did he get hit did he and the the little bird was somewhat infamous for the the shoulder harness not locking in a crash sequence especially in a roll so i thought okay well he did the old cyclic kiss what happens the guy will hit the cyclic with his mouth in the crash sequence so then my priority was okay you know here we are little black helicopter shot down 300 meters from the bad guys so i got to get out i got to get out and make sure we're secure and yeah you know, and I knew the guys were there so there was five vehicles in the recce team and I told I looked at my copilot. I put my hand on her shoulder and I said hey man get out and I said meet me over here because you don't want to get in front of an armed aircraft because you don't know if a rocket might go off or... and I didn't know any of the condition until I got out it was the whole back cargo area was on fire and I when I came to I was kinda of hanging there in the straps and I was like, Where's all that popping sound? You know, that sounded like popcorn. Well that was ammo cooking off in the ammo cans behind me. I mean they're right right behind me. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, that's not good and then my I had seventeen pound rockets on board. So I'm like, well, what's gonna happen when these rockets heat up or catch on fire, will they explode, or you know, what are they gonna do? So so I crawled out of the helicopter, I grabbed my rifle, uh, I tried to stand up, my right leg wouldn't work, I tried to take a step and I just hit the ground, and, and then and at the same time, the, the other AH was coming to check on us, they had flown over us, I think two or three times, and they said, they told me later, they said, man, if we hadn't seen you crawling out, we were, that turn we were landing and we thought you guys were dead. And the ground force said the same thing. So they saw me crawling out and get up and I'd fall and get up. He said, let's see, he said, I looked like a circus clown. (laughs) I'd get up and fall down, get up and fall down. But my right leg wasn't. And they told me later I'd gotten a stinger to that L spine on that right side. And I did, I did finally get up. Then I sat back down. And I thought, well, maybe my leg's broken. So I pulled my pant leg up, checked both legs, checked myself again, and <clears throat> got my rifle, got up, did 360 degrees security around the aircraft to make sure nobody was coming. And I could hear the guys to the east of me. You know, they were getting it on. They were I mean, everybody was shooting at this point. And they were on the radios and, you know, trying to get some help in there. And then I I went back to the aircraft to, in my, we carry our little rucksacks right behind us. So in there, you know, water, hand grenades, our night vision goggles, and, you know, just stuff that you need. Well, it was fully engulfed in fire. So I'm like, I'm not reaching my arm in there to get that out. And then I went back, I checked on the co-pilot again, and he was hanging there just, kind of dazed and confused. (laughs) I was like, hey, you okay? And he's like, just shook his head. And and I said, all right. I said, you got to get out. The helicopter's on fire. I was like, I ain't kidding. So I went, kind of crawled back out, went back out. And I kind of took a knee. I was looking to the east. And then I looked back and I said, where in the world is he? So I crawled back. I crawled in the helicopter and I pulled his latch on his seatbelt and he fell you know he fell down when and and he hit his head and he kind of looked up and I guess it you know it kind of brought him back to
2: yeah.
0: what the heck was going on so I just I just grabbed I mean fire was fire was just licking at his arm when I when I got in there and I said man I, I gotta get him out of here right now so I just I just grabbed him pulled him up on top of me and just pushed. I just pushed with my legs out of the aircraft to <laughs> get him out kinda of rolled him over and then, you know, did a quick assessment on him and uh what it happened he's bitten through his tongue in the crash sequence and that's where all the blood came from. Yeah. 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 He had he'd had L spine injuries and we were all pretty beat up, pretty bad. I had I had over a total of like thirty four, thirty five, thirty six surgeries and I have over forty pieces of titanium in my body, so yeah. Another day at the office for a yeah. six gun. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you you describe your actions during uh, during the uh, crash uh, with such clarity. How you were at 165 feet? How long did it take you to fall to plummet from all these actions you're describing? All these thoughts that are going on. How long did it take you to go from 165 feet to the ground?
0: Approximately 3.4 seconds. Yeah, they, they took all the data and sent it down to Fort Rucker and they put it to, you know, replay it. <laughs> and the, the wow. one of the guys told me that the machine couldn't successfully land the helicopter with all the, wind, the tailwinds, the airspeeds, the height, the data. But it was impossible to land, successfully land the helicopter.
2: It is absolutely amazing to me that you s- sat there and spent five minutes going into detail of each of your actions, of your awareness, of, of the auto-rotate, of, of, of all the things you were doing, and that was within a four-second period of time.
0: Yes, sir. Yeah, was pro- the whole sequence is about eight seconds from the time we stopped rolling, we got on and slid, and That's came amazing. to rest. Yeah, it was about eight
3: seconds. Uh, what, what do you attribute all that to, uh, Greg, that you were able to successfully survive that? I mean, is that, is that your training? Is
0: that the man upstairs looking over your shoulder? That That's training and the good Lord <laughs> saying, <laughs> okay, I'm not done with you yet, mister. <laughs> <laughs> I got I have a purpose for you. Yeah, absolutely. Our guardian angels were, golly. Well, I wrote about a bunch of them in the book. So. Yeah. Well, again, I was in. He had put me. The Good Lord put me in so many places at at so many times that you know it's like Kyle Lamb and George and they're like, "Hey, you have got to ride about some of this crazy yeah, yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. that yeah. you've done." And Kyle always told me that he'd say, "Gravy, if it ain't written, it never happens." So I I really took that to heart. And yeah. My wife was my biggest inspiration for writing these stories because I didn't want to do it. I was—I'll tell you quite frankly—I was scared to do it. I didn't want to be that guy, and nobody had really written about the one sixtieth the way that I, you know, we put this into these stories. And they're just stories. They're just stories. It's—it's about our tribe, and it's about our team, and it's—you know—very faithful. Christian men, you know, doing their their jobs. And and I and I, you know, I want to help vets that maybe are having problems getting through some tough times. And man, we've all been through it. And you know, and to let you know, I dedicated the book to our children because I hope and pray that it it will shine some light on our absence for all those years. And, you know, to help them understand, and they may be in their 30s now, I,
2: sure. you know,
0: my kids are, so right. that's, you know, they're late 20s, 30s, and I've met some, you know, they're in early 30s, and, know, uh, hey, what did my dad do?
2: Right. Yeah. So,
0: and I and I try to convey that to them and the public and yeah you know and and to help future warriors you know our next generation hey what am i going to get myself into if i want to go yeah you know fly for the 160th or be a ranger or you know be whatever and uh yeah
2: it's so that's important though it's it's not um it's not being that guy it it is it's recording history yeah
3: and 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 greg you're absolutely spot on i mean unfortunately if it's not written, it didn't happen. I mean, I, I remember talking to somebody once about uh, the explorer Magellan, famous explorer. He wasn't the yeah. only one to make these huge uh, cross-trans uh, Pacific sort of expeditions, but he was the one who had a historian with him on his ship. Smart. Right. So th- that, right. Was, that was the expedition that got written about.
2: Yeah.
3: Right on time yeah.
2: there. Right <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry. So. No, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, we don't want to keep you too long, but I really... Uh, oh, no, no, you're, you're fine. Okay, because there's more to this crash. So so it's daytime. You, the, the balloon goes up. You're at biop. You fly during the day to, yes. to help out your brothers. And, of course, now that you're down, the Air Force is going to do the same, correct? They're coming to get you. They're the son-
0: no, they're not. They refuse to come get us. Yeah, theater-dedicated combat search and rescue, Air Force Special Operations helicopter. Now, I'm not saying the pilot. I don't know, but the troop commander says, Hey, Greg, come here. You need to hear this. They said, We're not coming to get you. It's too risky. Wow. And I was like, What? (laughs) And simultaneously, back at biop. So the word gets there. They've got every helicopter, every little bird, every black hawk. And to to listen to the guys tell a story is kind of funny. They had woke everybody up, you know, green, red, brown, said it looked like the (laughs) Clampets. Dudes dudes were hanging off the helicopter because they were coming to get us. Yeah. And I got on, I I finally got on the radio and we got, I called the talk, our talk, and I said, Hey, sir, don't. We're secure, okay, Docs, you know, the medic was there, I mean, working on us. And I said, I do not want any more helicopters coming in here. Of course, you know, we have a procedural process. When that happens, you know, we get fixed wing overhead. We clear an area for, you know, five miles or three miles or whatever, ten miles. And to ensure, you know, the safety of those aircraft that are, you know, and, uh, that always really kind of made me angry because I told those guys, let me tell you something. I would have come and got you, man. Right. I would have. Who, who did come I don't care you? what they said. No. Who, who, Pardon? Did, who did come and get you ultimately? Well, we, so I kind of go back. So well, it was one of the 160 of Blackhawks. We finally got to Ramadi up to the MSS. Up there on the northeast side of Ramani to they rode. That, that staging area. And yeah, they landed. And you, you guys
2: ex-filled, ex-filled with the assault with the ground forces all the way back to the yes. MSS. Yeah, yeah. The yeah, MSS is the mission support site. So ultimately, nobody came and got you until you were you were back back behind the wire.
3: In a secure area. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So the, the boys got you out who were on the ground for that mission. Pardon. So so the, it was the, the boys who were out on the on the ground for that operation were the ones that, that pulled you off target.
0: Oh yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, and we were you know I we had kind of I'd gotten the co-pilot out and I set up in just a bit of a defilade and I put him in the prone facing north and I was on the knee facing east for security. And I told him, I said, Hey, if if you hear something or see something, because we were both pretty jacked up and, and and i said just sing out so let's put both sets of eyes we'll put both gun barrels on them He had his rifle i have my rifle and you know we'll assess this before we start shooting at anyone and then about then a few minutes later i heard a truck engine and and then i heard the vehicle stop and then i saw this ball cap you know kind of going up and down. Then I saw a face, and I go, "Oh, that's Chaz." <laughs> okay, I go, "Hey, we're good to go." <laughs> okay, good guys are here. And, and uh, Chaz came running up to us. And, but I, I was talking to him a few months or sometime later, he, I asked, him, well, you know, what did you think, you know, when you came running up there? And he's like, "Man, I, that helicopter was burnt to the ground." And Emma was cooking off he said you know we we kind of gave a look to each other when i left that they would had per that y'all had perished yeah and he said i when i came running over that you know and i saw he says how did those two rangers get there so fast because <laughs> we were <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> one north one you know and he was like because we were in desert you know bdus and look like everybody else and, but he was like, Oh God, that's gravy. <laughs> okay, man, let's go. <laughs> yeah, he he ran up and hugged us and he asked me, he says, What do you want to do? And I said, I want to go find that guy kill him. I said, I, I at least wanna check that building to see if there were any dunnage or Yeah, yeah. You know, we could get anything to and the the both guys that had seen the shot, every service air missile leaves a signature, a smoke trail signature. You know, it's dark gray smoke gray smoke or white smoke and you know they've seen the corkscrew and it's and everyone has a signature corkscrew smoke trail and they you know i said man it was a 16 i guarantee you but they had done forensics on what they scooped up and they found a small piece of metal that came from an sa16 wow that's
2: that's
0: what got us
2: so chaz said i I think you and you say i want to go get that guy and so what happens
0: well, we load up, and <laughs> we got two Panders, so it's an armored vehicle, six-wheel vehicle. We have three gun trucks, up-armored, Humvee gun trucks. One's got a 50. I jump in the truck with the Sergeant Major and Ranger Smith. He's on dual 240s, and the next gun truck's got a 50. So we assault this bill by immigrant. And uh, I, I was like, "Okay, I asked for this, so you know, we're gonna go get some." <laughs> of course, Doc was poking us and pushing stuff in her throat. So, <clears> throat> so the, everybody shooting at these buildings, and I, I just, I kind of look to the right, I kind of look to the left, and you know, it, it, I'll, I'll age myself, but Dave, you may remember, you remember Rat Patrol, yeah, that old that show. Well, that's the first thing that entered my mind was those crazy bricks and their jeeps in North Africa hunting Germans. And I was like, man, this is kind of cool. It reminds me of the rat Patrol, you know? So anyway, so we hit the building and, and we get two of the trucks get stuck in the mud in the middle of this gunfight. So we're suppressing and the pander maneuvers. He backs up to one truck and guy jumps out of the back, you know, with a strap <laughs> to the be under fire and pulls it, pulls that truck out and then maneuvers over to us and hooks the strap up and we're suppressing and <laughs> pulls us out. We get turned around, we go around and we attack, attack these buildings in the front and Ranger Smith had engaged, uh, it was a big tent. or some guys running around there with AKs. And then we had deployed out. We had deployed out when on the stuff, when the truck was stuck. I'd gone to the left corner and dude came out with a, he had a black man dress on on the phone. And I'm like, okay, this guy's calling his buddies. You know, hey, the Americans were here. They're stuck. We just shot their helicopter down. So I popped him twice. Some seventy-five grain love, and then and then Ranger Smith joined in and engaged with the dual two forties, and then we saw a couple guys running. One had an RPG, one had an AK. So I engaged both of them, and then yeah, I mean everybody were just ever engaging targets of opportunity. And, and, Greg, and then we finally,
2: oh sorry, got what? to the
0: building and cleared it, and went on the roof and cleared it, there was nothing there, so, yeah, so we got back in, and we fought our way back out of there, and fought our way through Fallujah, and between Fallujah to Ramadi, and fought our way through Ramadi, and then to the MSF, and we got there in about, it was probably 9.30, 21.30 hours that night.
2: And I just want to say that you're no slouch with a long gun either. Like, you're a helicopter pilot, but you're also a three gun, com- you know, a three gun uh, competitor. And, uh, yes, sir. Like, you, you shoot a lot.
0: Yes, sir. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. I was, a, I was an instructor for BTAC with Kyle after I retired. And yeah. That was, that was by far the best post army job I ever had. I just, I love to train. Yeah. I love to shoot three gun And I shot with the, army marksmanship unit for a while and yeah i got to train with the best shooters in the world man so heck yeah Yeah. i love to shoot i can hold my own pistol rifle long gun ah
2: yeah i just i just wanted to kind of throw that out there for the people watching and listening that it's like okay here's this you know helicopter pilot running alongside you know rangers and delta but You do, you know what you're doing. Like, you are, you're not a strap hanger. You're not like, you know, the attachment at this point. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you you bet. How were your injuries at that point, though? How were you able to keep, you know, were you just gutting it, gutting through it?
0: Adrenaline.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, adrenaline is the best drug on the planet, man. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And I'm pretty sure Doc had wanted to. You know, do something, but I was like, "Hey, I I don't want any morphine or yeah anything like that." I, you know, I'm good. I just had this terrible headache. It had when I I hit the door frame in the crash sequence, and it cracked my helmet. Wow! I had hit it so hard. God, wow. oh, just had this terrible headache. And it, my head hurt for like nine months. <laughs> it finally, it went away. So I had a brain bruise. <clears throat>
2: So with
0: uh, yeah, it's all good
2: with the headache and the physical injuries. So you get back to the MSS, they fly you back, uh, or from Ramadi, and they fly you back. but Do you keep operating? Is 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 that the end? Like where where do you go from here?
0: No, they they took us both to the cache there in Baghdad, and then cash to back home. The our docs at Fort Campbell wanted us home at Fort Campbell, so they're they're very protective of us and. So we did that, and then I started a process of getting shoulder. I had both shoulders, worked on both knees. I'd broken a vertebrae in C3, uh, vertebrae L3 through L5. And, you know, so the docs, I sat down with them. We prioritized and started a plan. So I'd, I'd get stuff worked on and take you know, 30, 60, 45, 60 days. To, then I'd go back to the box. Then I'd go do that for 90 to 100 days. But right, yeah, then I came back and had some more surgeries and I'd physical therapy. And then, you know, I started back flying again, and going back, flying rotations till I retired. Yeah, that's what I do.
2: Yeah. And, so we're talking about the physical toll of the job. Is there a mental toll?
0: Yes. You better believe there is. Hey, fellas, can I take a break for yes. a minute? Absolutely. Okay, I have to hit the head.
2: Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, okay. yeah go for it, go man. Ahead. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Please. This isn't
3: live. So. No, it's yeah. not. We're good. Yeah, folks, so uh, we'll, we'll see if I can try out my editing skills, but if not, this is just a apropos uh, time to remind you to subscribe to the channel if you're not already, and give uh, it a thumbs up, make some comments down in the description. And, um, oh, yeah, there's also the link down in the description to our uh, Patreon page.
2: Yeah, um, also uh, Greg's book, we'll talk about it again when he comes back or near the end of the show, but Greg's book right now is out on Apa, uh, Amazon Kindle. Um, we'll find out. It's, it's not in print on Amazon yet, but I believe it will be. But um, if you have Amazon Prime, it's free. And uh, he, gets, he does get uh, paid if you read it or if you thumb all the way through it. And he is donating all the proceeds of the book. To uh, to different the charities Night
3: Stalker Foundation, I think it's the uh, the foundation for the Delta guys, and then uh, Free Ranger Rangers
2: Foundation, Free Rangers Foundation. Yes, so um, please,
3: we should also point out the book is uh, co-authored with our friend George Hand, and George is a retired Delta Force operator. And if you go back, he was a guest on this show, episode thirty six. Uh, We did like a two and a half hour interview with him, like real in-depth about his career. So he was the co-author of Greg's book that we're talking about today.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, Guests coming up? Uh, We're going to do a quick video uh, for New Year's Mm -hmm. uh, that's just going to lay out some future guests. And then the week after that, January, uh, our first guest in January will be Jeff DePetzi, who is a JTF-2 operator, uh, Canadian Counterterrorism Unit.
0: Ah, thanks, fellas. No worries. I still have that little, that little bird bladder.
2: <laughs> 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 oh. So, what, fi- final... Uh oh so we're we're asking, we're just asking about the mental because mm-hmm. because you know I think that um, for all of us, you know this the job is the job, everybody loves the job, we wouldn't do anything but the job, um, but we've had many people on who talk about the consequences of the job and and what life is like after the job and and, and you do write about it in your book, and so I was hoping that maybe you could share some of your experiences with us, and and maybe not just for the the personal part and the history part, but maybe for any other soldiers out there, or any, any person out there who may be struggling or going through hard times, to hear that they're not alone.
0: You bet, and that was, you know, that's one of the purposes of this book, is to, you know, if a vet picks it up and reads this, young or old, I don't, I don't care that you know, that, hey, you're not sharing your pain alone, brother or sister, and you have a network that will help you. And oh, by the way, God loves you. I'm a very faithful Christian man. That's, that's the only thing that got me through the, the, the peaks and valleys well, that I went through the last 15 years, so to speak. And. I, I go into great depth and detail in my struggles in my failures and my victories and i um you know again, I pray that that when a vet reads this he it will flip a switch for him or it will it will motivate him to seek help or go talk to somebody, go talk to your brothers, go talk to your pastor, go talk to a therapist. And they've done that. I've been in therapy since two thousand and five, and I was—I guess—officially. Oh, what's the word? It, it was. I was diagnosed with PTSD in two thousand five. So, the unit went the one hundred and sixtieth. They went, you know, above and beyond, and we have our own psychs there at the compound and. For the unit, and, and it is to help families, it's to help soldiers, it's to help kids, it's to help everybody. And, you know, I even say in the book, I talk about spouses and kids and family members that, yeah. you know, they suffer from PTSD. I mean, dad's gone, mm-hmm. you know, special operator, ranger, whatever, and, you know, no communication, worry about him every night for three months, six months, a year, whatever the case. So, But now there is, you know, there is a focus on that family member and that spouse and and those kids. But yeah, hit, hit some, you know, the demons come. I mean, I'd go days and days, no sleep. And, uh, you know, then there's a good old ambient, you know, you, you get to that wall, you get to that, that point and your body has to rest. Your mind has to rest. So, you know, alcohol, prescription drugs. Did it all, man. And it, and it was all to crush that pain, yeah. that pain. So everybody suffers from it. Unfortunately, some of my very close friends have succumbed to that pain and mm-hmm. taken their life. I, I start the book out talking about Leon. He was one of my best friends on the planet. And it just, ah, uh, just broke my heart to, you know, one, I, I question, well, how, how is it that a highly intelligent human being that gets to the pinnacle of a profession and a career and live through all these horrible things. Right. And then succumb to the demons and the pain and take their life. Right. Well, they, they lose hope. I, these, this is my theory, my study that I've done for many years now, but they lose hope and they don't have a loving God. So God got me through these trials and tribulations over the years as I was going through this. And, it, and it's, it just sucks. And I went to, in 2013, I went to Carrick Brain Center there in Dallas. And they were, they're, they're a center, it was a two-week inpatient And they would take four vets at a time, but their expertise was on TBI for football players, Mm traumatic brain injury, for football players for years. So they started up a program for vets, and I I was fortunate to attend that for two weeks. That was a that was a big turning point in my life to you know help me mentally and physically. It's it they use a whole man concept and and now though there are just there's so many opportunities for vets and you know nothing else i i try to tell several vets every week hey i'll call them or text them or whatever and just tell them that i love them
2: yeah
0: that that's all they want to hear that's all they need to hear and you know hey man call me i mean i've had calls at two in the morning three in the morning four in the morning at noon you know hey i got an empty bottle of irish whiskey and a load of 45 and i've just had all i can take well no no it's not (laughs) let's let's just let's talk about this for a little bit and you know i've taken vets into my home that were sleeping in their truck and no job mama left and kids are gone took all their money and and i i get it man been there done that after 32 year marriage failed and uh but you know god loves you and we love you, and there's a way out, but you, you just have to go talk to somebody, and that's what I tell every man that i that I meet or I mean even Vietnam vets now, i I talk to every veteran i I can because that's that's God's mission for me. that's his purpose for Greg Coker is to go help my brothers and help them get through these tough times. there There are good times to be had, yeah, and there, there always will be. But you just you can't quit. You know, night stalkers don't quit. And, and you just can't give up. And you, yeah, faith, faith, your faith will, will get you through this. God loves you. And, you know, and, and your brothers love you and your parents or whomever that uh, we need you here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For sure.
2: Yeah. They, uh, what you wrote about, Leon, was, was I mean, because we've all at this point, I think, lost people close to us Uh, who just you know and 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 it's challenging because from what you wrote about leon you didn't there was no indication there there was no sign there was there was nothing and and that's when it becomes challenging is when there's that front and there's that you know that wall, that shield, that, that, you know, persona. Uh, but there's so much going on behind that, 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 uh, they just don't let us in on.
0: Yes, sir. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's, and I see that a lot in our community. Yeah. Is that, you know, there's no signs, there's no symbols. There's, they go and execute. They, yeah. They've made up their mind. And, yeah. And they, yeah, doggone. And it's, You know, and I, I I, think I say in a book, it's I did read some, some data last year where it was closer to twenty six a day now that veterans take their lives. And you know, in any other country, it'd be an epidemic. I mean, we're looking at ten thousand humans that sacrificed and served this great nation and gave up what they gave up, and we're not helping them. You know, we're not we're not doing the job that we need to be doing to help these fellows. And the other thing I saw too that was interesting was that the mean age was 50 years old. Mm-hmm. So that's, you're looking at the Vietnam vets. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Picking their lives. So, yeah, it's, it, it's, you know, it's just, it'll never go away. And, and a lot of guys, you know, PTS, and I, I never did like that, you know, that symbol or that stigma with that. I, I always felt, that it should have been called post-combat stress because anybody can suffer from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or post-traumatic stress. I mean, a rape victim, somebody that's been in a car wreck, somebody that was abused or, you know, whatever the case, every human's different. And I, I think the, you know, to better serve veterans, it should be post-combat stress because that's what it is. Right. And it, and you know, you guys know, especially the, the Op Tempo, which we kept and are still keeping today, twenty years later, throughout the you know throughout the world, is you know leadership, and they've done a good job, but we have to stay on top of this stuff. Op Tempo, it just kills us. oh one oh eight,
2: yeah. And I think you're you're absolutely right. I, I've never thought of it that way before, but it post combat stress is is very different than post-traumatic stress in the sense that it's not just the, the, the psyche, the traumatic like Jack wrote an article on, uh, on blast injuries and, and TBI, and, TBI yeah. and how those
0: Good article to it
2: And then I also think that there's just the idea that these people who were at the top of the game, the top and, and living their dream and then that ends and. And there's nothing like that for them in that life afterwards and trying yeah. to find purpose after that, trying to find meaning after that. And so all those things mix together and create this very, very <laughs> challenging scenario. Yeah, they go,
3: they go from being like a Formula One racer to being like a dude with both your legs broken, paralyzed in bed. And yeah. That's, that's psychologically yes. traumatic in of itself.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, we don't quite, you know, we haven't quite broken the code on, you know, how to help them and how to, you know, seek, seek medical care or, you know, their, their mental stability to, you know, help them advance into a good, a good life for themselves and those, those that are around them, their loved ones.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, While you were gone, we were telling everybody that the proceeds of your books, you've been donating them to different charities, um, you know, and, um, that the book is out on Amazon Kindle right now when will the book be out in print
0: Okay I just talked to the printer last week and I will be getting deliveries of the special edition hardback color books 15 January All right that we're so you can go on the website com, and there's about oh, 250 of those left the first 500 addition those books. I <laughs> so I numbered the books and then I designed a coin, a challenge coin, which we all are familiar with. Sure, and each coin is numbered to match that book number. Cool, so those sold out in 20 days. And I, I swear, I was like, Lord, if I can just sell 50 books, I'll be, I'll be good. <laughs> but boy, they I mean, they went fast. So I had a couple other. They're like, because I wasn't going to do anymore. So I had several people tell me and text me or message me that, hey, I really want one of those hardback books with a coin. I don't care about it being numbered. So I did, I got another 500 of those with a coin.
2: And they can get those and, on your I site? Met? Pardon? They can get those on your site?
0: Yes, sir. You go to the website and instructions on how to order. I've been handling all this myself, so I'm, I'm gonna
2: go order It's one pretty one. easy, so we can
0: we put it on our bookshelf That's back right. here.
2: We're, we're, yes, yeah,
0: I'll, uh, I'll get you. Well, I had the to... so this is the cover. I don't know if you can see it. Yep, looks good. Cool. That's it. Yeah, the cover, it's a pretty cool. Story about the cover. That, that's a Rob Wentz print. I don't know if you ever heard of Rob at Wentz Art Gallery. He's a former Blackhawk pilot from the 160. Oh, really? And just, yes. And I mean, this guy, he's, he's phenomenal. But so I called him and he did the latest, uh, I was probably three or four or five years ago. He did the latest six gun print. So for B Company, it's got a eight, it's got the eight. That's his print. That he did for us, for B Company. That's super cool. And so we were wargaming the cover, you know. The writing was done. I was like, okay, man, we need to come up with a really cool cover. And and I'd thrown some stuff at Geo and and a couple other folks. And, well, that print's hanging in my office at home. I look at it every day, and I was just like, duh. (laughs) You know, I'm not the smartest ranger in the troop. (laughs) But right there it is. So I called Rob and told him, you know, I was like, Hey man, he's writing a book too. That's, that's going to be phenomenal. And I said, look, man, I, I'm, I need a cover for my book. And, I, and the words didn't even get out of my mouth. And he goes, yes. And he gave me the copyright to that print to use wow. as the book cover. That's amazing. So it was, That's nice stuff. yeah, it was really, really cool. But, you know, here it is again, you know, guy from the community, of course, yeah. Geo, been from Delta, and I was just so blessed to have him go on this journey with me. That it, you know, if it'd been a, another editor with no military background or experience, you know, you have you spend a lot of time explaining things. Or, right. Well, Geo knew it. I mean, he's lived it. He's right. been there. He's. I, I was just blessed, uh, and his style of writing is quite entertaining. <laughs> so yeah.
2: yeah he's he's a hoot yeah I, and I uh, then the way
0: the book cover came you, yeah. together
2: i promise you if you read that you will you have not read anything like this book before and i mean and i say that oh, wow. in the best way yeah. like, and we cover
3: we cover a lot of special operations books around here on this it, podcast, it's such so. a
2: novel yeah. and unique tale because we just I, would, I mean, you're really. I think one of the first pilots to really come out and and really like shh, mm-hmm. like right there in you know in the cockpit and and uh, mm-hmm. it was it was it was amazing.
0: Yeah, and you know I was blessed that Kyle Lamb wrote the introduction for mm-hmm. Sergeant Major Lamb wrote to Kyle. I've been a good friends for many many years, and, and he's seen you know the good and the bad. With me for those times, and you know, he and Melinda have helped me get through some tough times, and and we just you know because we love each other, and you know, back when he was <clears throat> operating and hiding under a bush, scared like a bunny rabbit, calling for the AHS to come help him. You know, I mean, what what can I say? No, 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 don't, don't print that. <laughs> but yeah, I was just very honored that Kyle did that for me. And yeah. He, he told me, he's like, dude, I cried when I read this.
2: Yeah.
0: And that, that, that was powerful. I mean, that was pretty powerful. Well,
3: um, Greg, thank you so much for joining us on the show for our, what will be our Christmas Eve edition of the show. I hope everyone enjoyed it. And uh, oh, uh, we will be back. Uh, we'll have a, 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 kind of a new year's message for you guys on the first. And then we'll be back live again on the 8th, potentially in studio with Jeff DePetsy. Yeah.
2: The one disadvantage of having a pre-recording this is that uh, we don't have like the audience input. So we're going to have to have you back on at some point, maybe not to go through the whole thing, but even if it's sure. like a shorter segment so that people can ask sure, after sure. they watch this, that they can ask the question that they want to ask you.
0: Oh, awesome. Well, thank you so much, fellas. It's, it's an honor and a privilege, and I, I really appreciate you doing this. And Craig, it's yeah, I just, just want to help really. help some guys.
2: Yeah, it, it is our honor. We we deeply appreciate you spending your time with us. It means a lot to us. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. God bless you, and have a merry Christmas.
2: You too, Greg. You too. Stay, stay healthy. All right. Bye, everybody.
3: See you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
2: A Laundry. <sighs> Ooh, a book club.